winter of 1692 was bitterly cold and brutal in the newly founded Massachusetts Bay Colony. The ground was covered in a thick blanket of snow and ice coated the trees, the farms and homes like a shiny frigid layer of translucent glass. The bone chilling winds howled. It was the kind of January cold that would take your breath away and leave your exposed fingers frostbitten in minutes. 20 miles north of Boston, an incident is about to occur that will spawn the hysteria of an entire town and lead to the deaths of 20 colonists accused of signing the Devil's Book. They would hang for witchcraft. Now turn down the lights, turn up the volume, and join me, Autumn Rivas, in a darkly lit place while I tell you the history behind the Salem Witch Trials. This will be a two-part episode with this week providing you the background details of the Salem Witch Trials and next week getting into more about the accused and the accusers. Salem in 1692 was not a pleasant place. The citizens were constantly feuding and arguing over property disputes, and to make matters worse, King William's War had come to the colonies in 1689 with fighting between New France and the New England colonies. New France occupied what today would be Montreal, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and Northern Maine. All of this fighting caused the displacement of refugees who relocated to Salem Village. This influx of the population put undue stress on the already limited resources and patience of the people trying to make a living in this small village. The colonists were also plagued by a recent smallpox infestation and the constant fear and paranoia of attacks from the American Indian tribes surrounding the village's outer boundaries. Also in January of 1692, just days after the events that would spark the wildfire that would become the witch trials, one of the most horrific attacks, the Candlemas Massacre, would devastate the town of York, Maine. York is located in southern Maine, just 50 miles north of Salem. Just before dawn, on January 24, 1692, a militia of 300 French and Wabanaki Indians on snowshoes silently approached York. There is a plaque standing today on the same spot where they piled their snowshoes before the slaughter began. It is said they crept from house to house without making a sound, one by one, killing all occupants, men, women, and children, then setting fire to the home. The town would be completely ravaged in the raid, and in the end, about 100 were left dead and another 50 were taken hostage and made to march through the snow and cold all the way to Quebec. As you can imagine, news of this massacre 
further instilled the fear that was already overshadowing Salem. It's first important to distinguish that Salem at this time is made up of two distinct locations, Salem Village and Salem Town. Salem Village was on the northern edge, roughly five miles from the town, and it was rural, mostly farms and farmland, while the town was on the water and an important port in the New World. It was a merchant and fishing community. By the 1670s, the village and the town were growing and evolving, and some of the farming community in the village wanted to become less dependent on the town. Two families in particular were beginning to emerge as leading factions in Salem Village, and large successful landowners, the Putnams and the Porters. The Putnams were extreme conservative farmers who strongly believed in the traditional Puritanism, while the Porters were not only successful farmers, but also had established strong business and merchant ties to Salem Town and its overarching government. It was almost like a small civil war was brewing within Salem Village between those who, like the Putnams, wanted autonomy and independence from Salem Town, and those, like the Porters, who had ties to the harbors and merchant economy of Salem Town and opposed the separation. To make matters worse, these two families had a history of lawsuits and squabbles against one another. Most of the village farming community wanted their own church, and in 1672, led by a village committee headed by Thomas Putnam Jr., they got it. But they were to find it wasn't easy to establish a new church. The first three ministers all stepped down following controversy over salary and housing and internal church members' disputes. Then in 1689, after a long deliberation and negotiation, Reverend Samuel Paris accepted the position to be Salem's first ordained minister. Samuel Paris was born in London in 1653, and as a young child, his family had moved to Barbados after his father purchased a sugar plantation. At age 20, Paris would take over his father's business following the death of his father, but he wasn't very good at being a, a sugar merchant. So in 1680, three years later, he would move to Boston with his two slaves, Tichaba and John Indian. Soon after relocating to Boston, Paris would marry and father three children, but he never did find much success as a businessman. So he made a career change and instead pursued a life as a Puritan minister. And in 1689, after being heavily recruited by Thomas Putnam Jr., he would move his family to Salem Village as the new official minister. Paris's style as a minister was rigid, conservative, 
and strictly upholding to the traditional Puritan beliefs, which was not necessarily welcomed by all of the villagers or church members. And contrary to the Salem Town Church, which had progressively become more inclusive of members, the Salem Village Church under Paris had gone the other way. It was increasing the exclusivity and upholding the strict traditional eligibility for membership, which only fueled the already heated division amongst villagers. Paris would soon understand why his predecessors had stepped down. There would be ongoing bickering among the villagers over Paris's contracted salary and benefits, which had included a house and land. By fall of 1691, the balance of power would shift and the porters would gain control after a new village committee was elected. This did not bode well for Paris, as he would soon come to realize. While the Putnams had supported and recruited him, and liked his strict traditional Puritanism, the porters opposed Paris and his style as the village minister, and they disputed his contract. The new committee refused to collect taxes to pay Reverend Paris's salary, instead relying on the villagers to voluntarily donate as contribution to the minister's pay. The committee also refuted the house and land granted to Paris when the Putnams were in power and refused to provide firewood to warm the church or Paris's home. And as I've already alluded, the winter would be brutal. To say the actions of the new committee aggravated and provoked the Putnams along with Paris is an utter understatement. The minister, so I've read, started using his sermons as a means of retaliation, declaring that the devil was at work instigating a conspiracy against the church and possessing members of the village. This brings us to the January of 1692. The bitter cold had settled in, and the miserable attitudes of the people of Salem Village would be left to fester inside their homes. In the home of Reverend Paris, his nine-year-old daughter and 11-year-old niece began to act odd. They started having what is described as fits. They had strange convulsions and would contort their bodies while screaming and throwing things, these were not how good Puritan children behaved. In fact, good Puritan children were to be seen and not heard. They were not coddled or doted upon or treated like mommy's little angel or daddy's girl like children are today. They were treated more like free labor. They were farmhands and they were taught strict Puritan beliefs. This behavior went on with no symptoms of a typical illness so Paris sought out the diagnosis of a local doctor, William Griggs, who also could not determine the cause of what was afflicting the girls. So, as was typical for the day and age, Dr. Griggs diagnosed the girls as bewitched, thus providing the catalyst that would tear Salem apart and provide its tragic infamy. 
which is having contracts with the devil, was a widely and common held belief as a real thing in the 17th century. In Europe, witch hunts and the subsequent trials had run rampant for centuries. Witchcraft had long been outlawed in England, dating back to the reign of Henry VIII, and in the early 17th century, King James of England had even written and published a book on the subject, Demonology, in which he describes in detail his account on witches, witchcraft, and many other topics of black magic and the paranormal. It would be in this text that James explains the justification of allowing testimony from children as acceptable evidence in witch trials. In 1612, the testimony of a nine-year-old was used to convict 10 witches, including the child's own mother and grandmother. All of them would perish, nine hanged at the gallows, and the grandmother, sadly, would die in jail. And the colonists had no doubt heard tales from back in the homeland of Matthew Hopkins, the self-proclaimed witchfinder general, Between 1644 and 1647, in the midst of the English Civil War, Matthew Hopkins would take advantage of the lack of law and order and start off on his own mission to purge the devil and rid the world of witches. By the time his reign of terror would end, hundreds of people would have been put to death for the crime of treason against God witchcraft. Hopkins would also publish his own memoir detailing his witch hunting process in which he used multiple methods of torture to obtain the necessary confession and documents his witch tests as he called them such as the swimming test in which the accused would have their hands and legs bound to a chair before being thrown into a pond or lake or moat, any body of water would do really. If the accused floated, it was a sign that the baptismal waters rejected the accused and you were deemed a witch. However, if the accused sank, the baptismal water accepted your body and you were deemed innocent. Unfortunately, A common side effect of sinking meant you were also likely to drown, making this a rather inconvenient test for the accused. Either way, the probability that you would survive would be extremely low. So you can see that the devil and witches and witchcraft was a very real thing in 1692. And while the witch trial craze of Europe had all but wrapped up by then, it was only just beginning in the New World. Just a few years prior, in Boston, 1688, Goody Glover would be accused, tried, and hanged for witchcraft. Anne Glover was an elderly Irish widow, and she provided laundry service to the Goodwin family. In the summer of 1688, four of the Goodwin's children, B. 
began having what was described as fits. They would become violent, make strange animal-like noises, suddenly fall deaf and dumb, and complained of being tortured by some unseen force. The family sought out doctors and local ministers to pray for relief, and of course, the doctors could find no scientific cause of this affliction, so obviously, it had to be witchcraft. The dark arts had been used to curse these children to suffer. Goody Glover was not well-liked. She was uneducated and poor and not in good health. Not to mention, she was also Catholic, not a Puritan. And it was the Goodwin's eldest child who claimed to have fallen ill, directly following an argument with Glover. One of the local ministers, Cotton Mather, was completely convinced that Glover was the witch and pressed to have her arrested and tried. Mather was a highly respected and influential Puritan minister. He was from a highly regarded family and Harvard educated. And remember that name because it will come up again later in Salem. One of the tests for identifying a witch was the ability to recite the Lord's Prayer without error. It was believed that a witch would not be able to correctly say the words. And while Goody Glover did recite the Lord's Prayer, she did so in a combination of Irish Gaelic and Latin. Mather insisted that this was proof she was a witch and urged the court for a conviction, which they did. Anne Glover would be hanged for witchcraft in Boston Common in November of 1688. Cotton Mather documented his account of the Goodwin's experiences and details of the case and the children's bewitched afflictions the following year in his book, Memorable Providences. His book would be widely distributed across all of Puritan New England. The young girls in Salem had likely heard all of these stories. Remember, there wouldn't be much to do during winter in colonial New England. These kids had to be bored out of their minds. Storytelling was one of the few sources for entertainment, and Tichiba proved to be a great source of this type of entertainment. She would regale the children with her stories and is said to have shared with the girls stories of witchcraft and voodoo and other tales of the occult. It's debated if Tichiba taught the girls a game of fortune-telling or if it was just a widely known game at the time. In any case, the girls also found entertainment with a fortune-telling technique known as Venus glass. They would drop an egg white into a glass of water and use the shape to divine answers to questions. The girls reportedly used to play and ask about their future spouses. This was a practice that was condemned by the Puritan religion and strictly forbidden. It's reported that during one of these games, not long before her affliction began, 
that Anne Putnam saw the spectral image of a coffin, which terrified her. I'm not sure if it's ironic or convenient that these afflictions first manifested in the Reverend's own home to his own daughter and niece. It wouldn't be long before these afflictions spread. The Putnam household was next to experience these strange behaviors. Thomas Putnam's daughter Anne, his niece Mary Walcott, and their live-in servant Mercy Lewis all began to have the same types of fits that were possessing the girls in the Paris household. With the spread of the bewitchment, it became the highest priority to find the witch who tormented these children. On February 28, 1692, under intense interrogation, Elizabeth Paris and Abigail Williams named three fairly easy targets as witches who cursed them. Tichaba, Sarah Good, a homeless woman and beggar, generally regarded as a nuisance by neighbors, and Sarah Osborne, a widow, who had caused scandal in the village after marrying her Irish immigrant manservant. She was also in the middle of a legal battle over a property dispute with the Putnam family. Both Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne strongly denied all charges and adamantly defended their innocence. Tichaba, however, maybe under duress given her status as a slave, confessed. Her confession was so dramatic and detailed that she captivated the audience in the courtroom. She told of being visited by Satan that he bid her to serve him, that he was a tall man with dark hair and always dressed in black. She told the court about animals that were used to communicate between the witches and the devil and that she herself talked to the devil through hogs and a great black dog. She told of a yellow bird that she saw suck at the finger of another witch. She also told of seeing the devil's book and the signatures of nine witches. The meeting house went silent. Tichaba had all eyes on her and the audience devoured her stories, absolutely convinced it was the terrifying truth and that their worst fears had been realized. The devil had come to Salem. The villagers now had a confession, confirming their greatest fears and making witchcraft very real. They also now knew that more witches were hiding among their small righteous community. The hunt to find the witches that plagued the village of Salem had begun. Thank you for joining me. Autumn Rivas in a darkly lit place and don't forget to stop back for the rest of the story 
with all the gory details of the accused and the accusers from the rest of the story of the Salem Witch Trials, which will be posted in two weeks. Please take a moment to check out the website at darklylitplace.com and look through the photo gallery, learn more about the podcast and myself, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at a darklylitplace. And thank you for listening.